Fan Drive Time, Sports Time 590 Fan. Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy. What is uh, Billy Corgan's wrestling outfit? The NWA. He bought the National Wrestling Alliance, uh, which oh. is very, very historic. N- and when you hear, like, NWA, yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, when you hear, like, Ric Flair is a 16-time world champion and stuff, a lot of those are, are NWA title mm-hmm. reigns, uh, Dusty Rhodes, that, that kind of stuff. Way back in the day. Uh, it is not good. Oh. Now. Okay. It had, like, a Did, did he moment. ruin it? No, it was, like, he like pulled it out of the drain oh. and was like maybe this could be a thing <laughs> put it back put it back put it back in the- <laughs> <laughs> all right okay uh we didn't talk about patrick kane's showing trying to impress the toronto maple leafs brass that uh they should give up whatever it takes to get a double retention and uh former stanley cup champion all-time great yesterday and i just uh a hockey game, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, just a horrible, horrible 60 minutes of hockey. One in which he had a couple of pretty notable turnovers and didn't stand out for reason reasons other than that. And, uh, yeah, it does. He declined to speak to the media after the game as well. If I was reading his body language, and, again, the performance, I would say that, one, this guy doesn't want to be a Toronto Maple Leaf, and, two, like, it's it's very possible that in the coming days he's like, yeah, yeah, the hip actually hurts a lot. Like, I don't want to be traded, and, in fact, I don't want to play anymore this season. Get me the hell out of here. Seems possible, uh, at least that they decrease his minutes from 20 a game. He was bad, and I asked Bourne this yesterday. You know, Patrick Kane is 34 now. Before you get into all the ancillary stuff that you, that you have to consider with Patrick Kane, do you trust that? He can find that on switch for you with only a little bit of time left here before the playoffs. I don't look. He didn't have the on switch on yesterday. Maybe maybe he can find it. He scored ninety two points last year, but that did not look like a guy who's a little bit of extra effort away from contributing in a meaningful way to uh, a playoff run. Now, obviously, he could contribute in some ways. He's still Patrick Kane, and mm. it's not that far away but as Bourne laid out yesterday where does he fit given what you already have on the right side and when we start talking about the cap gymnastics you'd have to do in having Chicago retain and then finding another team to retain some and then give up assets in both of those directions I think you can aim a little higher but it does feel like the the Leafs are aiming for a forward and this is from Elliot Friedman's latest 32 thoughts on sportsnet.ca Toronto GM Kyle Dubas is doing his best to hide his intentions but I believe he's looking at a forward. The fourth line has been a mishmash, and whether he adds someone for that spot or aims higher and pushes down another forward to strengthen the overall group, he's going to address it. It doesn't mean he won't consider adding to the blue line, but he's deeper there than up front. To me, that line is like the most obvious and clear line of them all. Like Justin Hall just got bumped out of a hockey game because he had a lackluster performance in the second game against the Blue Jackets since the all-star break for a guy who like all he does is when he plays in Connor Timmons, like either score or the team scores around him and he's <laughs> assisting on those goals. So yeah, I mean the, 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 he's not exactly playoff tested and it does not fit the bill of like prototypical playoff defender. I'm not sure that uh, Vlad Gavrikov is necessarily that either, but it seems pretty clear to me, Blake that yeah, I mean, this is the conversation we've been having all along, really, and like pushing back to Frank Saravelli every Tuesday when we have him on, that it, it feels like Kyle Dubas is finally seeing what I think a lot of people have seen, that this team needs a little bit more depth scoring. It could use another defenseman too, but yeah, if you were going to prioritize one, it's it's the forward. 
I think so. And I have thought that for a while. And I think, you know, how you feel about that. Look, we people can feel differently about the quality of the defense or what you prefer in the playoffs. This team's shortcomings more re- in the more recent side of this six or seven year stretch have been on the offensive side, which I know with the, the star players that they have and the mm-hmm. 60 goal season and William Nylander, it sounds wrong, but this, Look it team, up. this team has become very good defensively and the issues have not been keeping the puck out of the net. It's been finding some secondary scoring, finding a way to threaten another team and make their defense uncomfortable so that it's at least a question of, oh, what line do you load up all your best defensive players against and your best defensive pair? Um, you know, if we believe that it will continue that play, uh, power play opportunities dry up a little bit in the postseason, you know, what is your ability to score over the, over the 50 minutes or so that are played at even strength? That is something that the, the Leafs could use a little juice on. Um, now, would I be a thousand percent comfortable with two of Hall Timmons Sandine having to carry defensive zone starts or, or big minutes in a playoff series? Probably not. But I think right now your path to improving is more clearly find a top six forward, preferably who can play on the left side that bumps someone else down, shores up your top two lines and then slides a little scoring boost down to your third line or fourth line. Uh, and maybe somebody who's a rental, maybe not. Uh, yeah, by the way, Dick Kipperos with a great story today on mm-hmm. on, on uh, the Toronto Stars website about uh, Kyle Dubas. Yeah, going into a lame duck year, which is not necessarily uncommon, but that there wasn't a courtesy year just added to the back of his deal that even if they were going to part ways with him at the end of the season, which you could understand, even if you might not agree with it, that, it, you know, it's a like honestly like a courtesy payment, and you should say okay. I, he's getting played. He's getting paid handsomely. Why should you just be handing money away to an executive that you're firing? But this is an organization with limitless funds, and it is a practice that's pretty common across all of pro sports. And secondarily, Charlie like, Montoyo got an extension, exactly, and then they fired him shortly after. We're a year and a half from Nick Nurse's contract being up, and we're already starting to hear, well, why doesn't he have a new deal? Like, that's yeah. going to be a Raptors talking point this entire offseason, I'm sure, unless a, a bigger market team, uh, you know, comes, market's not the right word, but a glamour team comes calling for Nick Nurse or something like that. Um, so I think it's reasonable. And then the biggest question I have and I'm sure other front office execs have the same question. And hey, maybe it's a helpful thing for Kyle Dubas to have a little bit of a poker face here. And not only a poker face on his own, but a plausible deniability poker face. Mm-hmm. If you're going into negotiations and Kyle Dubas is standing firm that he's not going to include a first round pick and he's not going to include, say, Matthew Nyes. If you're an opposite front office, are you thinking that's a negotiation tactic? Are you thinking that's his preference? Are you thinking he doesn't have the autonomy to move future assets when he might not be here past this year? That is a, a very real question that I have. And then if I'm an opposing exec, I don't know. Do you call that bluff? Do you, yeah. do you ride it out to the final moment of the deadline and see if he puts a first on the table? I'm really curious to see how that plays out in terms of the Leafs aggression, because by all accounts, if Kyle Dubas had one more year left on his deal, we would all think with a thousand percent certainty the Leafs are going to be incredibly aggressive again because mm-hmm. they have to be. They're in... Even though nothing tangible, like nothing philosophically may have changed, it would have eliminated that part of the conversation. Right. Can he move future assets? Right. Or is the board or whoever's making that decision saying, 
no, this is what you've invested in over the last four years. Yeah. And if it doesn't work out, you're not going to be here. So so we're not going to cut off at the knees the the next person. Yeah. Yeah. And what you also do when you have a, yeah, when you don't add that extra year is like, you've definitely made uh, the decision already that he is fired if you do not win a round. Even if like, you know, it's a similar ending to last season or something really fluky weirdo happens and, and nobody at all blames Kyle Dubas. You've said, yeah, we're obviously not going to extend a guy who has had no postseason success over the near half decade that he's been the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs. All right, we got three games remaining in the NBA tonight before the official All-Star break. Uh, and the Suns will will wrap up the unofficial first half of the NBA season against the Clippers tonight. But no Kevin Durant, although he did have like a rally thing today in Phoenix. There was fans in attendance it was, it was like i thought it was just gonna be like a normal press conference unveiling him but no matt ishbia the new owner of the phoenix suns was there and like a thousand couple thousand fans were there um he was getting all emotional talking about his time with the nets and said that yeah he was not privy to any of the conversations that kyrie irving had with the front office yada 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 you um took part as you always do in tim bontemps mvp uh straw poll mm-hmm. and not shockingly the guy who's having by far, the best season again is the leader of that straw poll, and that's Nikola Jokic, the two-time defending NBA MVP. Um, like I said, it's it's uh, it's undeniable what he's put forth. It does put him in the super select small group of NBA players that does not include Michael Jordan or LeBron James that have won three straight NBA MVPs, but... What he's doing, and now for a, a team that is reaching at least regular season levels that they haven't reached in the two previous years that he's been the MVP, how how is he not going to win it? We assume a lot of the time that there will be some combination of narrative fatigue and, hey, we don't want to give this guy a third in a row because it's only happened three times and not since the 80s. Guys have won consecutive MVP, MVPs 15 different times. And it's happened a bunch of times in the last couple of decades. The most notable for Canadian fans is, is surely Steve Nash winning two in a row. And then somewhat ironically, the third year being his most deserving and him not getting it. But his first MVP was probably the least deserving. So right. he, he probably on merit should not have won three in a row. It just should have been a different three. But it looked a certain way when he came second uh, in 2006-2007. LeBron James had a four-year stretch of going third, first, first, second. Very, very close to winning a bunch in a row. LeBron hasn't won an MVP in a while now, even though he is by far the all-time leader in MVP award shares, which is just basketball references way of kind of counting up your total votes over the years. Giannis, a couple years ago as well, had won two in a row before Jokic took over. So there is precedent for us getting to this point and... A player. So there were prior to Stefan Giannis, the last six players to win back to back finished at least top three in MVP voting the year after. Mm. So voters aren't afraid to have them high on their ballot. Yeah. Whether they would crown Nikola Jokic as the first since Larry Bird and just the fourth ever to win three in a row, this is where you start trying to find arguments against it, right? If he's the presumptive number one, well, what would make you not? Pick him number one. You'd but go. It, it would be team record, which was the right. argument the last two years and playoff success, right? Limited. Yes. And they went out in five games in the first round last year. But now they're first in the Western yes. Conference. And it's not a playoff award. No. That's not how it's done. But they so, didn't win the West during the regular season either. 
Right, but I'm saying for this yeah. year. No, so exactly. you could go team record, and they are five games above everybody in the West. You could go, well, maybe because they're so good, his stats aren't as impressive. Uh, guess what? In 2016-17, we gave Russell Westbrook an MVP because he averaged a triple-double, and he was the first one since Oscar Robertson to do it. Guess who's the third <laughs> to do it? Jokic. Nikola Jokic right now. You want to go and try to do an analytics fancy stats Argument, uh, guess who dominates in every one of those categories? The closest thing I think that you can do is look at Giannis, to a lesser extent, Joel Embiid. Giannis's team has a slightly better record than Denver right now, and his per-minute numbers are unbelievable. Well, and he's averaged over 37 points a game during their 11-game winning streak, and they just beat the Celtics in overtime. And here's where the here's how you make the Giannis argument. Brown, but yeah. Here's how you make the Giannis argument. He is so good, and the Bucks are so dominant that he just doesn't play enough minutes to match up with Jokic statistically. I kind of buy that. You can. The the minutes per game is a is a thing that you can look up. Now, the counter to that, to to argue against my own argument, is that Jokic has to play more minutes because every time he steps off the floor, <laughs> Denver gets pasted. Yeah. Like he and he's only averaging he's averaging fewer than 34 minutes a game too, Jokic mm-hmm. and is averaging 25, 11 and a half and 10. It's ridiculous. So I don't know. I, I had Jokic one on my ballot. I had I felt a little gross that I just had chalk. Like mm-hmm. I, I obviously don't see what other people's ballots are. Right. But my ballot ended up being um, almost exactly what the, the results were. I had Jokic, Giannis, Embiid. Uh, and then I had Tatum ahead of Doncic because of Boston. Yeah, that's the way record. he finished. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, Tatum then finished I had, four. Then I had Duncic ahead of Tatum. Oh, okay. Um, I, I just remember that I had four and five flipped. Yeah. Well, hard I mean, to make an argument against Jokic right now. Well, it, it is. It's really hard. Um, would you have an issue, though, with him going into the Larry Bird, Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell triumvirate of, of players? Because he hasn't, again, it is a regular season award. Um, and, like, the Nick Wrights of the world love to, like, come back to this argument when the, the Nuggets don't do the things they were expected in the postseason, talk about him being a regular season player and not the type of player that can lead your team to a championship. And so much of that will be decided with clearly his best Nuggets team that he's ever played on. Well, yeah, this guy, I mean, when, when this last happened, Larry Bird won three straight. He won two championships over those three years and was in a finals in the third. And he had previously already won a title too, which probably played into like the first MVP award. And we know, of course, Giannis already has a title. He's he's climbed to the top of the mountain. And I know it shouldn't maybe play into the narratives, but you mentioned the Steve Nash thing. Like there are there is a pushback to making someone the greatest of all time or like in a select conversation that goes even beyond some of the greatest players we've seen in this generation. And you said there is an argument to be made for Giannis. So it's not like you're just like, you know, you're you're really straining to make it. You can make it. Does that enter your thinking at all? I, I don't have a vote, to be clear, an official vote. Now, I have a vote in Tim Strawpoll, which over the, the several years he's been doing it, tends to reflect the actual voting results pretty closely. So maybe I have an unofficial nudge of the, the electorate. <laughs> electorate? No, I don't know. what. Anyway, I don't have a vote. I would vote Nikola Jokic right now. I think that all of those arguments are valid. But what I don't believe in when it comes to award voting, and this is the same thing as I wouldn't vote for a guy to win an award 
as a lifetime achievement award if he doesn't if he doesn't deserve, you know, hey, if you're in year 15. You don't even use that as a tiebreaker? As a tiebreaker, sure, but this isn't a tie. Nikola yeah. Jokic is <laughs> uh, having perhaps the greatest statistical season we've ever seen. It's stupid. And it, and if there was, like, and any indication of bias against him, it was shown in his December straw poll where he finished fourth, right? Yes. Like, people don't want this to happen, but you, you're just, like, hit over the head with a two-by-four. You have no yes. choice. And here's the other thing, too, is, like, you can dive into some of the more advanced numbers if you want, and certainly the on-off stuff, the impact metric stuff, it all says Jokic. I did something, I, I pulled some data that's just a, a little, like, I'll use the advanced stats to explain it, but it's it's basically just how efficient are you when you're carrying a monstrous load? Mm. No player in league history ever, not even Steph Curry's best seasons when he's draining a million threes at 50%. Nobody has been this efficient on this level of offensive load. And that's as a score. Mm-hmm. Jokic also leads the league in defensive rebounding and assists. Yeah. What, yeah, I mean, you have no, again, it, there's no choice. Even if you want to get into this, some of the defensive stuff, mm. he's not as good defensively as he is offensively, certainly. Uh, one, it hasn't really mattered in terms of how things are going for the Nuggets. And also some of the defensive metrics have at least started to say, like, he does a decent job being big in the middle. Like we've seen over the last couple of Raptors games, how just, having a body there and playing a little more conservative and just being big around the rim. There and then in it. his case, grabbing every single defensive rebound. You did it. You compared uh, Pirtle to Jokic. Well done. Yeah. One, two in the MVP <laughs> voting when we get to the, you know, this is only the second trimester report. So we'll see after uh, we'll see at birth uh, where the MVP goes. Uh, last, uh, last NBA thing for you. Uh, Mikhail Bridges sets a career high with 45 Ooh. points yesterday on, I would say, pretty efficient 17 to 24 shooting in four or six from three. He was perfect at, at the stripe, seven free throws, uh, eight rebounds, a couple of steals. I mean, five assists, like, and then playing, you know, all defense level defense for a Nets team that is interesting, if not championship level. But there is, I don't know, is there a possibility that something opens up for him, like as as like the head of the snake for, for a team that's going to be in the playoffs this season now the the corresponding uh situation is now cam thomas is relegated to a bench role and i i don't know if you saw the media availability after the game that he had who's like good in a bench score role but like was emerging as a 40 point a game score before the deadline um but yeah i want i wonder if now something's opened up like there's a new world for bridges I think so. I think here's the important thing, right, is is that he's shown at least over a couple games that his offense can scale. And he's not going to shoot 54%. He's not going to shoot 57% on threes. But in, say, comparing him and OG and Obi, right, because they are, they were, when Bridges was in Phoenix, they occupy a similar role, same sort of player type, similar stat lines. OG, a better rebounder, and I would argue because of the size, a slightly better defender. Um, but Mikhail Bridges, you know, gets the edge because he's an Iron Man. And OG and Obi struggle to stay on the floor a little bit. It's the reverse of an Iron But man. what you're seeing now is that that little bit of additional playmaking, both for others and to create his own shot, that Mikael Bridges has shown, that skill is the most important skill. You Like, that is the most important thing for scaling from elite role player to top guy. And it's something that OG and Obi, we've heard, you know, hey, he wants more role last offseason or, or – and. 
whether you believe that stuff or not, I, I think obviously he's a young guy who's pretty efficient in his role now. He would want more. But when it's not at the rim or on threes, he hasn't really figured that out. And he hasn't really figured out how to create for himself. Mikhail Bridges is flashing a lot of that. And that is something that helps you reach another level more than being a really, really good defender and knocking down your threes and finishing assisted shots at the rim does for you. So uh, I think he's going to come back down to earth for sure. Whether he could be the number one guy on a, on the next era of a Brooklyn team, I kind of think at some point during the life of this contract, they'll be tempted to see what they can get for him. He's got three more years left really affordably. So maybe you don't have to, but he's also going to be 27 next year. Mm. And if Brooklyn is, we'll see how they operate the offseason. If they take a, a larger step back, um, you could get an awful lot for Mikhail Bridges. Apparently they got offered four, four, four firsts for him mm. at the deadline. Um, but Mikhail Bridges and Nick Claxton is a, a heck of a one, two defensively to start building with. And you add Cam Thomason as an offensive piece. They kind of backed into being an extremely fun team. Well, that's it. Like, are they not back to where they were before KD and Kyrie decided we're going to show up that they had built an organization that, yeah, was stable enough to, to, to be a landing spot. Now, I mean, it's, it's probably not happening immediately because they got the stank on them, right? Right? Like, it's... it's also, if you're Sean Marks, are, oh you, are you doing that again? If you're Joe Sy, are you doing that again? Probably. He's a billionaire. <laughs> they don't learn lessons the way we learn lessons. I guess. Um, anyway, Brooklyn is a lot of fun. I really hope the standings shake out a different way than they are right now over these last 25 games because the way it looks right now, Brooklyn and Cleveland would play each other. Yeah. And I think they're both two really fun teams to see take on an older guard team. Like I would love to see Cleveland end up against say Miami mm-hmm. in a matchup and then Brooklyn draws Philly uh, and, and gives them a lot of trouble. I think those are more fun matchups than, Hey, the two young upstart teams that are really, really entertaining have to play each other in the first round. No, I, I'm with you on that. All right. Before uh, we let you go catch your, your airplane, Eric Thames announced his retirement um, today. Now, I have a lot of time for Eric Thames. Oh, yeah. Uh, he dropped to the Blue Jays in the draft initially because he had, like, injury concerns with the with the leg. I think it was the quad uh, that he had some serious injury concerns. I think he dropped to the sixth round. Anyways, he's a guy that hit throughout his entire career, arrived at the major league level, uh, was a fun player. His defense left a little bit to be desired in the <laughs> outfield, but whatever. Um, but, yeah, he was obviously not a complete player and then was traded – I think in the middle of a series against the Mariners for Steve Delabar, who uh, I think like walked across the field and ended up being an all-star. So it was a good trade. Raise the bar. Yeah. Uh, He was like one of the final vote candidates. And then Eric Thames like petered out and by all accounts thought his career was over and then played in the Venezuelan league in the winter. And some scout from the Korean baseball organization saw him and said, Hey, would you like to try playing over here and he said like yeah okay killed it absolutely killed it and i loved seeing the 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 highlights of him with like the the gold elbow pad he was stealing bases he was like the biggest superstar in that league so much so that it earned him nearly 20 million dollars in a major league contract from the milwaukee brewers where he did the thing that he could have done to stay in the major leagues the first time which was like just Honestly, be a little bit more patient because he had the power. He obviously had the ability to be a, a good hitter, but what has undone many a prospect is just having no patience, having no ability to walk, having no ability to work account, and 
he was able to figure it out over the course of a career. April 2016, one of my favorite features I've ever written. Uh, I spoke to Eric Thames. He was in Korea at the time, and I, I was here, and I did a big profile on him going from quad A slugger to Korean League superstar. I talked to him about you know his whole diet being just bulgogi. I uh, talked to him about... You know, I mean, he's a huge metalhead. He was at that time trying to find a way to watch WrestleMania while in Korea um, (laughs) because he's a big wrestling guy. Um, He is a fascinating guy. That story's awesome. One of the coolest parts about talking to him about it is um, in terms of the stolen base output, his first base coach was like the Korean stolen base king. Yeah. And it seemed like he absorbed a ton from just... You can learn how to steal bases. And if they're walking you and putting you on first base all the time... You should. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's one of my favorite things I've ever written. Uh, One of my favorite athletes I've ever gotten to talk to. So pour one out for for Eric Thames. Yeah, Uh, who did well. Again, a guy who never made his money with the... Like, he made money, okay? But he didn't make life-changing... Like, I can retire money when he was a Blue Jay and maybe made a little bit closer to that in the Korean baseball organization. But, like, his performance there earned him now... Yeah, I can retire money. Made... Guaranteed 16 million bucks. There was an option for seven and a half million, I think, and a couple of uh, million in, in buyout money. So Eric Thames is doing all right for himself. But uh, And now he can just like follow Amon Amarth and ghost around and go to those concerts. Or or maybe he'll go to Elimination Chamber this weekend. I doubt he'll be in, uh, in Montreal, but yeah. I'm going to go there right now. All right. Have fun, buddy. Have a great time. Are you taking a break? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, you say thanks. Thanks. <laughs> See you Monday. <laughs> All right. When we come back, we'll talk to Dylan Dutier, uh writer for Golf uh, Magazine, and he's also featured in Full Swing, the Netflix golf documentary series. Tiger Woods still underway in his first round in California. Fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Annis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Covering the Raptors in depth like no one else. The Raptor Show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan drive time, Sportsnet 5.9 of the fan. I'm Ben Ennis. And Tiger Woods nearing the conclusion of his opening round at the Genesis Invitational at Riviera Country Club, the golf tournament that he hosts. And, okay, he's still upright. Uh, Made a a birdie, a couple of bogeys. He is one over par through 12 holes. Tied for 78th right now as Max Homa leads the way at 7 under par. Um, let's talk to Dylan Detier, uh, writer for Golf Magazine, also featured in Full Swing, the Netflix golf documentary series, which I am through five episodes, Dylan. And you, you're, I mean, Joel Damon is the breakout star, but like I put you right behind him. <laughs> oh, geez. That's far too kind, but thanks for having me on. <laughs> thanks for doing this. No, seriously. I know it's, it just came out on Wednesday, but don't you think your personal profile is, is going, well, it's going up? Like, have you gained any any Twitter followers since since the series launched this week? Yeah, it, it feels like they're probably streaming in a little bit faster than usual, that's for sure. Um, no, it's been cool. It's been, it's been funny to see really how many of my friends that don't even know anything about golf have 
flipped on the series. I guess that's a kind of a testament to the the reach of Netflix that people are looking for new stuff. And when it pops up on Netflix, you know, they, they are pretty good at reaching people. So I would say, you know, if my little world is any indication, um, this is leaving a mark, which is, I guess, the point. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's absolutely the point. And like I said, Joel Damon, uh, if you haven't seen the the series, will be, I think, the, the breakout star. I uh, didn't have a great day today, by the way, at uh, Riviera. But, um, I mean, do you think the guys that were taking part in the series, and, and Damon obviously has lots of impetus to do so, a guy that's not a, a household name, but, you know, the first episode is Justin Thomas and it's Jordan Spieth. Do you, get, do you think those guys bought into the, the, the whole idea of the thing, which was to do for golf what Drive to Survive did for Formula One and look at, like, the popularity of that sport across North America since that series launched? Do you think there was real buy-in from the players that took part? I think there really was, and I think, to your point, the episodes that turned out the best, I think there's a high correlation between those episodes and the buy-in of the players. So I was talking to Gino, Joel's caddy, who's, you know, if Joel is 1A, then Gino is 1B from yeah. uh, from that episode. Gino was just saying, look, we've got nothing to hide. We are who we are. You know, we we don't really have, like, secrets. There aren't skeletons in the closet. We're, we've been pretty real about who we are. We're not trying to keep up some facade. So in some ways, they were the perfect um, – stars for for at least an episode feature in the netflix show and i think they bought into that fact realizing that yeah people are interested in seeing what life is like on the pga tour not just for the top guys and that's an important part of it but also for relatable uh characters that have really interesting backstories off the course so those guys definitely bought in they allowed access um and it's crazy to think how much footage they went through but definitely paring it down to some some pretty good highlight reels of Gino and Joel to show the funny stuff and the emotional stuff and also uh, just the toll and the grind of being out there and the highs and lows, I think, makes it a pretty universal story that, that doesn't just appeal to golf fans, and, and I really do mean that. Yeah, I mean, it, it could have really gone above and beyond and been the number one show on Netflix if, like, Tiger had participated. That's, like, asking too much, I guess, <laughs> yeah. Dylan. And I guess, like, I haven't finished the whole eight-episode series. Maybe he shows up in episode eight, although I, I think that would be a, uh, a misstep by the creators to, to hold that one back until the end of the series. So I'm just going to assume I they don't... would have heard about it by <laughs> now, yeah. <laughs> but, no, but I know you just wrote about uh, Tiger and and and, you know, his his work with the PGA tour. And obviously he's been vocal in, in, in trying to protect it against the, the live golf series. Like what he, he is interested in the future. I don't know of the sport might be too strong, but like of the PGA tour. He really is. And it's, it's been, it wasn't obvious that he would take up that mantle, I guess at the beginning of this live versus PGA tour thing before we even knew how, how big a rivalry it would be. Tiger did go out of his way to to side with the PGA Tour. And, you know, I mean, part of that, yeah, could just be a, a natural instinct of, look, that is where his career existed. Um, and so some of his some of his important accomplishments and statistics throughout his career, those have all come within the ecosystem of the PGA Tour. So if the Tour suddenly, like, went away, mm. I don't know, you don't have the same context and same importance to what you've accomplished as, arguably the, the greatest player in the game's history. So it is natural that he would side with 
you know, improving the status quo instead of tearing it all down and starting something new. But it's interesting just how much in the weeds he's gotten and how, you know, the guy's literally getting on conference calls and, and Zoom meetings with other PGA Tour players, even though this is the first, it's the first event that he's played that's not a major on the tour since uh, since the fall of 2020. Yeah. So it's not like he's playing a lot of events out here, but he's still very invested in its future. Yeah. And now, now my brain is the the wheels are spinning, and I do recall the first <laughs> the first season of Drive to Survive. Lewis Hamilton was not involved, and you know what? He was right. very involved in in seasons beyond that. And and obviously, Lewis Hamilton's you know, ability to win year in, year out uh, on the F1 circuit is different than Tiger Woods nearing 50 years of age. But, like, is can you, in your mind's eye, imagine future seasons of full swing with Dylan Dettier? I, yeah. I assume that will be an added title for the, for the, the second season. Uh, that Tiger Woods do, <laughs> does appear on that show. So I think if you talk about someone like Joel, they would probably not include him if they weren't given full access, you know, yeah. you can't see him at home or at a, at a party the week of uh, TPC Scottsdale or, or giving access to his caddy and getting mic'd up. He might not make sense for inclusion, but Tiger, you know, he's not, he's not ever going to be a guy that's going to say, Hey, bring your cameras over to my house. Uh, let's, let's really dive into my personal life. You know, let's, let's, let's bear all here. That wouldn't be his role, but if they could get him to sit for some interviews, um, and just get into some of the essential questions of the professional game, which is sort of what happened with Rory McIlroy in season one, not to, not to give you any spoilers about mm. episode eight. Um, but there is some in between, there's a lot of in between there where I, I think you could see tiger potentially featured if he watches the first season and says, you know, I can get my head around that. Yeah. I, I, I would love it again. And it does feel like there's, there's a, some motivation there for a guy that is it is looking to increase um, exposure to the PGA Tour or, or or keep it as relevant as it's ever been. Although it's it's not a PGA Tour series, right? Like there's this real in depth stuff with with some of the live golfers and and I mean that's an interesting line to walk too, right? Because there's obvious um, moral questions asked of. The Brooks Kepkas and Dustin Johnsons in that series, but you can't totally alienate those guys because they're significant figures in the world of golf. Like it, it is. It's good that it's not a PGA Tour like sanctioned documentary that those guys are involved. Right. It's, it's an it's an interesting uh, line yeah. to walk though because you do want to also let people into the storylines that that surround that tour and those guys. Yeah, it's an interesting line to walk. I think is a good way to put it because you know they they wanted to take give it as good a story and as revealing a picture of, of uh, life out here as they could in season one. But I'm sure that there's also something in there where they don't want to piss off too many people that they say, Oh, there's no way we're doing that for season two. So yeah, I'm sure there's some politicking going on with the, uh, with the edit there. I think it'll be intriguing to see how they handle the live and the tour guys for season two, um, because, some of those guys will be at the masters. That's going to be a massive storyline, um, but they won't necessarily be in the weekend week out life on tour. So maybe they drop in with them for masters week or for the open championship or some of those other times. But I, I sort of would be surprised if, you know, they end up going to a lot of live events say this year, because I think that the, 
the show is probably still focused around the the tours ecosystem itself. Yeah, you know, I mean, you bring up the Masters, and like honestly, that was a little bit shocking to me. And I know the Masters has become more forthcoming with uh, with things, and like they, we can actually watch the opening nine on television now. But like, even that they mm-hmm. let cameras into some of the places that they let them into, and it's not like you got like into the bowels of Augusta, but like that this was even allowed to take place at all at Augusta was kind of shocking to me, Dylan. Incredible. And I think that in some ways was the key to the whole thing. And for most golf sickos, I think you get a taste of, Oh, here's some exclusive access to Augusta national. And you're like, man, I want more. Like, give me some more of that. Like let's (laughs) linger in some of these hallways and let's, let's see what's going on back here. And I think one of the things that I guess I would caution people to do is, is like take a deep breath with this stuff because I don't, I mean, at least speaking for myself, I didn't get into drive to survive until they were in the third season. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, there's so much pressure on this golf show because people already have expectations based off what happened with drive to survive. But so much of that was organic. It felt like, and and happened over time. So it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be everything to everyone, this show, but I mean, I, I think it's an enjoyable watch for, for golf fans and non-golf fans. And uh, it's hard to imagine it being anything but a positive. I mean, it's funny. I've been sitting in the golf media center this week. So it's a bunch of people that write and think about, you know, how to make golf interesting in different ways. So obviously everyone would, would direct the show slightly differently. And they, they, everyone's got, um, got ideas and critiques, but everyone watched it and enjoyed watching it. So I think that, there's some positive there. Yeah, no doubt, and you're great in it. I, I, I do, uh, I do think that you are, you're, you're, you play your role perfectly well. I, I mean, not to get too into the weeds, but like, yeah, how much of that is organic? And I, I, I understand that. Yeah, it's a reality show, and you know, it's non-scripted. But you're, you're trying to tell a story. You're kind of like the de facto yeah, narrator. Yeah. Like, how, how does it work for you? It's funny. So the bulk of my appearances come from. Um, from a few different taped interviews and two of those were on camera. You know, if you really get in the weeds, you can see I have like a different haircut in one of them than the <laughs> other one. Um, but, uh, and then there's some questions that they would send me a little bit later uh, just to sort of say, yeah, we'd love to get your take on this. And yeah, there were definitely times where I could feel like, all right, wait, hold on. What are you guys, what are you guys getting at? Here? And I would either say, I would either say, okay, yeah, yeah, no, totally. That makes sense. I see why you're making that comparison. Or a couple of times would say, well, yeah, I don't know. I, I like, I can't, I, I can't quite say what I think you're getting at because I don't think that's quite right. So there was, um, I mean, there are, there are questions that are sneaky hard to answer. Like I was glad they didn't end up using my soundbite for explaining what par is because that is a, that's a, that's a difficult concept to actually like start from scratch and explain, but, but uh, the one I'm most proud of, and this is, I think, in the last episode, was uh, getting across uh, the Tour Championship scoring in, like, one line or less, mm. which was, that was a big challenge. So, Good for you. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of the time they would ask an open-ended question. I would give a long-winded answer, and then that would either work or they would say, all right, cool. Can you do that again, but way shorter? And then, uh, and then we can try again. Uh, it's great. Yeah. I, I love it again. I'm not done, but, uh, what I've seen so far, it's a spectacular watch. Um, 
So I haven't been able to watch all of Tiger's round, naturally. I've been working, uh, doing a radio show. Uh, you're there. Uh, he, he's one over. He just made a, another par. There, I, I saw him out drive, you know, Rory and JT, uh, who are his playing partners today. So that's encouraging. I mean, he told us he'd, he'd be able to play golf. It was the walking that would be the issue. What, what have you seen from Tiger today? Yeah, it's funny. You touched on the speed, which is definitely there. He's got, you know, ball speeds that are definitely right up there with Justin Thomas and not far behind Rory McIlroy, even past him on a couple holes. Um, so that's not the issue. I think walking is one issue and rust is the other issue. And then I guess I just put on another layer. So Tiger does not necessarily like the cold. And for Southern California, it's definitely chilly in the mornings and the evenings this week. So there's a few different things that he's battling against. Um, I think if he could come out of today at even par, that would be a win. If he could make the weekend, that would be a, definitely a big win. Um, but it's pretty encouraging big picture. You know, it's just, it's just when you only see him occasionally, it's got to be hard even for Tiger Woods to only play golf every several months because tournament golf is just, you need reps. And, yeah. and whether his body can handle those, is I think that's one of the open questions right now. Yeah, at least like yeah, and there, it, Riviera's a little bit hilly. You go down on one, you come up on eight. Like, can't we build like a a a moving walkway for him or something? I know he's he's too proud <laughs> to take a cart, but can't we like make yeah. it so that everybody gets to take this moving walkway or something? I think one of the great hypotheticals of the last couple of years was um, I can't remember who started it, but the question of can a caddy carry a player? <laughs> you know. <laughs> I love that. Could Joe LaCava just, you know, uh, just sling Tiger over his shoulder and kind of get him down the fairways when he's when he's tiring out? I, so I think stamina will be um, a big thing to monitor at the end of his round today and then tomorrow morning when he gets off to an early start. So we'll see, man. It feels like the whole everyone on property right now is sort of pulling for the same thing, which is Tiger to have a good week. Um, and he got off to a good start, but he's leaked a couple bogeys on the back nine. Yeah, we'll see. There's there's plenty of time to to make up some ground here. This is one of those designated uh, high purse events, though, on the PGA Tour. And what is it like? Forty eight of the top fifty players in the world are are at the Genesis Invitational. Like early returns, are these things working? I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, you're not going to have universal praise from the entire PGA Tour because that's a ton of guys. And some of those guys maybe feel slighted by, you know, rewarding the top guys. But the reality of the situation is a lot of guys have been uh, living a really good life based off those top guys. So it's definitely time to reward the top players more, to reward top performance more on, on tour. And there's just, there's been too many events that have kind of flattened out the product for a long time. And defining better what is important for fans to watch and showing the top pros at a slightly reduced number of events. I think it's just a better fan experience. So yeah, so far so good. I mean, I think it'll take, it'll take definitely a handful of events to really see how it's going. I mean, there's, there's no tool that people like to use more in uh, in the sports world to sort of back up their narrative than TV ratings from like one isolated event. Right. Um, so we'll see how those go down the line. But I think I think as the season goes on, we'll get a better picture. But it seems like so far so good, and it also seems like the product is still evolving. And next year it'll look 
even more different than this year. Hey, before I let you go, so, um, yeah, Live Tour arrived on the scene in the middle of last year, and they were still picking up players, and they had no TV deal, and it was hard to figure out where to watch, and it was, like, on YouTube, and it really did feel like, oh, it's happening, but, like, who really knows, and the yeah. team thing, like, but this is, they, they got a full year, right? Like, they're going to start to finish. Uh, they have a TV, yep. TV deal. It's on, I, I think, the WB, which we don't get in this country. I don't know, actually, what their Canadian the rights. W, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, yeah, whatever that is. I, we don't get that here. I don't, I imagine they're working on a Canadian rights deal, but I'm not sure what it is or what the status is of that. But what, like, what are you expecting out of that tour this year? Is it becoming more relevant? I think there are two different paths, uh, two different possibilities. And the one that I keep kind of coming back to is that Liv's greatest power was the unknown, um, that, you know, they seem to have unlimited money. And they seem to have all this momentum. And now that the product is crystallizing, it it's, starts to look actually more similar to the PGA Tour than it does different. Like it still mm. is stroke play golf. I know they have a shotgun start. They have a smaller field. They only have three rounds. But it's still going to be stroke play golf on your TV finishing on the weekends. And I'm not sure that there's been a t- evidence that there is demand for an entire another tour that sort of fits those that description so i don't know i guess i remain a little bit skeptical that that there is a hunger for this exact thing uh the team product remains pretty interesting uh but they haven't leaned all the way into that either like if you look at the way the money is distributed Mm. it really is much more based on individual performance and team performance so we'll learn a lot more this year uh we'll learn if the product can can kind of sink or swim but yeah, the, the the trickle of players from the PGA Tour to live has definitely slowed, and it sounds like the contracts being offered have also slowed down a little bit. You hear about, you know, guys going for very little money, some guys possibly even going for free, just, you know, knowing that they can make a bunch of money over there. Um, but, yeah, it, it'll be really interesting to see how the product goes off next week uh, at Mayakoba. Uh, Dylan, uh, again, great job on, on the Netflix show. Thanks so much for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Nice chatting with you. Likewise. There's Dylan Detier, writer for Golf Magazine, and uh, he's one of the guys, he and Dan Rappaport, who are basically the narrators of the um, Full Swing Netflix golf documentary series, which I'm, I haven't completed, but... Through five episodes, I've enjoyed immensely. And like I said, Joel Damon, who maybe not everybody's super familiar with, he's a guy who wears like a bit of a floppy hat on tour. And it has like, he, I, I, don't, I don't know if he's actually paid by the, the uh, cancer, American Cancer Society, but like he's, his hat is like cancer with a red uh, line through it, anti-cancer hat. Um, and if you watch the series, you understand that he has a uh, close connection to defeating cancer. But man... In this series, there's this just, if you've ever played golf and you're like me and you're like not that good and you try real hard and you, you get like incrementally better, but like then you play someone who just has natural talent and you're like, oh, okay. And maybe they do go to the range occasionally, but not nearly as much as you. And they just are able to do it because there's something in their DNA that makes them good at golf. It appears to be Joel Damon, who, yeah, is. Not an Adonis. You do see him working out a little bit in the series, but like, no, he's not Colin Morikawa or Rory McIlroy, 
but he's just like amazing at golf because whatever gene it is that that makes you good at golf, he has it, and he knows that he's also not the hardest worker, so has no illusions about winning majors, but is more than happy to be a guy that plays in the middle of these PGA Tour fields and collect a check and make like you know, a couple million dollars a year because who wouldn't want to be that guy? And his job is playing golf. Uh, I can't imagine anybody else in the final three episodes of this thing getting a bigger bump in Q rating than, uh, than Joel Damon. All right, time now for last call. It is brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. Mentioned uh, there are three remaining NBA games before the All-Star break. And uh, the first one has the Bucks in Chicago to play a Bulls team that is not motivated to tank, but a little banged up right now. Bucks, eight-point favorites on the road going into the break. I guess Raptors fans should be na- should be now looking at, at Wizards out-of-town scores because that's a team that's that's chasing them in the Eastern Conference standings. Uh, they're in Minnesota to take on the uh, T-Wolves. They're playing pretty well recently. Minus three are the T-Wolves at home. Phoenix Suns without Kevin Durant but had a big win over the Kings earlier this week. They are hosting the Clippers in the last game before the break. Uh, Suns are half-point favorites at home. NBA futures at the break. Celtics, the champion favorite at plus 340. Suns, plus 450. Bucks, 500. Nuggets, plus 600. Sixers and Clippers, plus 1,000. And going into today at the Genesis Invitational, John Rahm was the favorite to win it at plus 275. Tiger was plus 20,000. Can't imagine it's getting much better at this point because he has yet to string some bogey, uh, some birdies together. Uh, that was last call. It was brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm Ben Ennis. This has been the Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan.